From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. If a COVID-19 vaccine doesn't appeal, slap some lipstick on it and a wig and a frock. Hi, come get vaccinated. Hi, honey. Hi. A drag queen clinic is one inventive way to get people immunized. There's that big lottery as well. CPR's Avery Lill finds out if this type of outreach works. Then, during COVID, we've been celebrating exceptional service. Today, a patient praises his endoscopy nurse. It's not a comfortable thing. <laughs> and she was very comforting and helpful. And... and she has an exceptional story of her own. Then, award-winning Denver author Stephen Dunn is an avid writer, not so much an avid reader. For a lot of stuff, I have to constantly look outside of writers. To rap and comedy. Some of Colorado's largest employers offer a matching gift or workplace giving promotion to their employees. Using a program like this, you can often double your giving impact. Companies like IBM, Google, United Health Group, Excel Energy, and Chevron top the list for gifts to CPR. See if your company matches on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. If immunity from COVID-19 isn't enough to convince you to get vaccinated, how about a free beer or the chance to win a million bucks? My co-host Avery Lill has been looking into the novel ways public health officials are cajoling people into immunization. Hi, Avery. Hi, Ryan. This is a story of mariachi bands and indeed free stuff, but it's, it's also pretty serious stuff. Right. COVID-19 vaccine appointments, they're going unfilled in Colorado and around the country. Just under half of people in the state are fully vaccinated. And the target for herd immunity is 70 percent. That way, even if someone does get COVID, it couldn't spread very far. So to encourage Coloradans to get a vaccine, the state, counties and local partners are trying out different incentives. There's the big one that's getting a lot of attention. The governor announced last week that everyone who's vaccinated in Colorado will be automatically entered in five drawings for the chance to win a million dollars. A million dollars for folks 18 and older. Uh, Students 12 through 17 will be entered into drawings for $50,000 college scholarships. Uh, But Avery, you've been talking with experts about how effective different kinds of incentives are, and you went to a vaccine clinic with a a unique draw. Ryan, it was so fun. Fun? Okay, I'm not sure that I think of a vaccine clinic as fun. Okay, probably the best way for me to explain it is just to play a little bit of sound from the clinic. Hi, come get vaccinated! Hi, honey! Where are you taking us to here? (laughs) This is the Center on Colfax in Denver. Hey, you got voodoo donuts for me? Those are Denver drag queens Dixie Crystals and La La Shears. They headlined the pop-up clinic at the LGBTQ Community Center. They greeted everyone who arrived to get their vaccine. They called people in off of the sidewalk to come in and get vaccinated. Here's Shears. Drag queens have always been at the forefront for our communities. Uh, politically, socially, and um, a pandemic like this should be no different. The advocacy group One Colorado led the event, 
Executive Director Nadine Bridges says the drag performance was important. You know, to create a space where it was fun and let folks know that we're here, we're queer, and we're being vaccinated. Um, we know that in our community, there are a lot of folks, LGBTQ folks, who felt uncomfortable with getting vaccinated. There's historical um, trauma around, you know, the AIDS epidemic and what happened back then and not feeling safe for coming in to be vaccinated or just the stigma behind it. Um, in addition to that, with our transgender and non-binary um, gender expansive community members, they're afraid to be misgendered, they're afraid to be misnamed or their dead name. And so we wanted to create a space where that wouldn't happen. What did people who got vaccinated at this drag queen event tell you about why they chose this particular venue? I want to introduce you to one person in particular. Jim Leo was visibly nervous when he came in to get his shot. I talked with him afterward while he waited to make sure that he didn't have a reaction. He has autism. He doesn't like strangers touching him, and he's afraid of needles. It's my buddy's birthday. He set the appointment up for me so that I'd be here. He knew I wouldn't be able to say no on his birthday. My friend Paige here helped me get here because I probably, uh, with autism, I probably would have overwhelmed at the door. And then there's a little gauntlet of all the exciting people that were excited to see you. But for me, that's brutal. But I've made it through. And um, then the person that gave me my vaccination, how awesome, his name is the same name as I have. So to me, it's my mom's birthday today, too. So that kind of just made it me feel like she was right here with me. And I was supposed to do this. Leo didn't think he would have been comfortable at a larger clinic, at a grocery store, or a pharmacy. Being a gay person, too, the people here, would, you know, even though they might be bright, they're still soft and friendly. This was probably the very absolute best place it could possibly have been done. His advice for other people who are nervous about getting a vaccine is that worrying about it was actually worse than getting it. So it's not necessarily that Dixie Crystals and Lala shares were the draw for Jim Leo then? No, probably not. But their names on the flyers did help get the word out. Amber Yazzie decided to come when she saw that Dixie Crystals and Lala Shears would be there. And she brought her wife, Kimberly. The girl that's out there, she was on the Facebook and I was like, I want to go see her. And they said you get a free shirt. And I'm a sucker for free stuff. My wife was very scared. But she pressured me into doing it, like, I would say three weeks ago. <laughs> so I got mine. I was against it. But the reason why I did get it was because my wife is high risk and I could potentially lose her. Jay Graziano also came because she saw the event on Facebook. I just kind of live a little bit across city and I barely, you know, ever get out. I figured this is as good an excuse as any, I suppose. How many people were vaccinated at this clinic on the day you went? 37 people and it was open for about six hours. Well, now, Avery, I think of the staffing costs for a clinic like that, you know, medical staff, community partners, emergency personnel who have to monitor after you get your shot. Uh, more than a million Coloradans still need to get vaccinated before we reach that point of herd immunity or something like it. Are smaller clinics like this one cost effective? You know, I actually posed that question to Glenn Mays. He's the chair of the Department of Health Systems Management and Policy in the Colorado School of Public Health. And he says that when people get a vaccine, there can be a real ripple effect. People who get vaccinated through these kind of special events, they're connected to friends and colleagues. And having a friend who's been vaccinated, having a social contact who's been vaccinated, raises those other social contacts, raises their likelihood of being aware of and ultimately um, taking up the vaccine. And so uh, these events may have a relatively small initial footprint, 
but their network effects, how they could spread through networks and through contacts over time, that's another way in which these events can, can be successful beyond their initial numbers of reach. All right, that's one clinic's way of encouraging people to get vaccinated. What are some of the other incentives you've seen tried out? So there are the big state initiatives, and the state is also looking at vaccinations at sporting events. Mesa County is having its own smaller drawings. Some clinics have had mariachi bands and churros to encourage people to come out. Weld County has tried a number of ways of making getting a vaccine more convenient after they saw a drop in people wanting to get vaccinated. In Greeley, they've held clinics at a music festival at a local brewery. The brewery gave everyone a free beer after they got a shot. They're also taking these vaccinations on the road. We are a fairly large county. We have over 4,000 square miles. And some folks in the rural areas uh, may not drive across the county to one of these previous big vaccination clinics that were on the far west side. And so that's why we have partnered, for instance, with the state health department and their vaccine bus. That's Eric Ako, spokesperson for the Weld County Department of Public Health and Environment. So some of this is about convenience and some of it is about having more engaging vaccine clinics. And how well do these incentives work? Is there any way of knowing? It depends on whether you're talking about financial incentives or talking about drag queens, beer, mariachi bands. Glenn Mays with the Colorado School of Public Health, he told me there's not a lot of data on those non-monetary incentives, but he thinks that they could help spread the word about clinics to people who aren't necessarily reading the news or checking public health websites. Those kind of strategies may help to get the word out through different communication channels. And like we heard, some of the people who came to that pop-up LGBTQ clinic that I went to came because they saw it on Facebook. What about those financial incentives? You said there's maybe more evidence there, like Colorado's million-dollar drawings. Those got mixed reviews from the folks that I talked with. There are a lot of reasons people haven't been vaccinated yet. Glenn Mays thinks that a shot at a million dollars could be helpful to cut through the hassle factor. I also spoke with Dr. Kevin Volp. He's the director of the Center for Health Incentives and Behavioral Economics at the University of Pennsylvania, and he teaches in their medical school. I think there probably are better alternatives to financial incentives, but among the different financial incentives being used, there are a number of reasons to think lotteries might be more effective than some alternatives. And part of that is because of the way lotteries work and why they're so popular among Americans. Basically, they work because they often give people a small chance at a very large award. And what people pay attention to is the magnitude of the award. And if they're at all on the fence in terms of getting vaccinated or they haven't gotten vaccinated because they just haven't gotten around to it, then this kind of incentive could be a very effective way to get people to go get vaccinated. They both pointed out that lotteries are not likely to sway someone who's already strongly opposed to getting the vaccine. Any concerns about unintended consequences? There are. Dr. Volt pointed out that if governments try to use financial incentives too early, it can actually make people more distrustful of the vaccine. It can seem like the government has to pay people to get vaccinated. And since there was a lot of demand for this vaccine early on, he doesn't think that that's a huge risk in this case. But he has another concern. If booster shots are needed this fall, this winter and beyond, it worries me that then it sets a precedent that people will expect there to be an incentive. Oh, like a lottery every time, in other words. Right. 
did anyone you spoke with think that financial incentives are just like a, a bad idea altogether? Well, a couple of people told me that there are just better uses for that money. Harold Schmidt is a medical ethics and health policy professor at UPenn. To me, the most important incentive that we can offer people and the most powerful incentive is to make it easy for people to be vaccinated in a setting that is conveniently located and that they trust. So a lot of these lotteries get a lot of attention at the moment, and I understand that. But there's a risk that this becomes a distraction from understanding why it is that people aren't vaccinated. In many ways, this is really about access, access, and access. It's, it's really as simple as that still. He points to access issues like health providers asking for people's IDs, even in states that have expressly instructed providers not to do that. That's the case in Colorado. That can deter undocumented immigrants from getting vaccinated. And not everyone can navigate websites to set up appointments or find walk-up clinic dates. And it can be hard for people to find the time to get vaccinated. A chance at winning money doesn't necessarily remove those challenges. And even if the lotteries do motivate more people to get vaccines, Schmidt thinks it's a mistake to take a utilitarian approach, the most shots for the most people. We also want to pay attention to who is it who's being vaccinated. And if you look at an important threshold was April 19, when the entire U.S. population became eligible for vaccine allocation. At that point, the difference between the most and least disadvantaged was 4%. Now we are at 8%. That rate has doubled. That's not what vaccines for all, that's not what health equity looks like, right? That has implications, obviously, for individuals. What does it mean for the community as a whole? Well, who gets vaccinated is also very important for herd immunity. And here's Schmidt again. If we reach a very large number and the majority of the large number of people who live in very privileged settings where they can socially distance easily, then they are not at great risk of getting and spreading the disease in the first place. Whereas if we have much larger numbers of more disadvantaged people who are more likely to live in crowded settings, who are more likely to live in multi-generational settings, who are more likely to work in essential jobs where they come into contact with more people, who are more likely to use public transport and come in contact with more people. That is the group, the more disadvantaged group, is a lot more important for herd immunity, for meaningful herd immunity, than simply getting overall numbers. We've heard a number of experts now weigh in on the financial incentives. I'm curious what the folks on the ground leading these vaccination efforts think. Well, some people like Eric Ako in Weld County think that the drawings won't hurt and they might help. Others were with Schmidt that there are more effective ways to use that money. I talked with Rudy Gonzalez. He's the executive director of Servicios de la Raza in Denver. It provides community and health services around the state. It's vaccinated more than 7,000 people in Colorado's Latino communities. He said they're successful because they're meeting people where they are, getting to know them, providing services in English and Spanish, and traveling all over. But those efforts take resources. So when it comes to the state vaccine drawing... I think you could better spend that money. Door-to-door vaccination. I I mean it. It's going to have to be going up and getting engaged, engaging our community, chatting them up, sitting down and having either pozole, menudo, or whatever, chile colorado, abondigas, whatever, which I wouldn't mind being a bachelor and getting them to agree to be vaccinated. Oh gosh, his ideas are making me hungry now. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) But since the state is going ahead with all these drawings, he also said... Hey, you can't win if you're not in it, right? So vaccinate. Well, Avery, thanks for sharing this with us. Happy to be here, Reg. 
For people in the service industry, the pandemic's been especially rough. Healthcare workers are included in that. So we've been asking for stories of excellent service in the COVID era. Roger Meyer of Highlands Ranch emailed us about a nurse whose professionalism stood out. She is Amy Sersanti at Arapaho Endoscopy Center. I got them both on the phone, and Roger told me about the day of his scope. It's not a comfortable thing. <laughs> and she was very comforting and helpful, and so I didn't have to feel panicked or anything about doing what I was doing. Amy, do you meet a lot of patients who are a little nervous, a little uncomfortable? Absolutely. When they come to see us, I work in the procedures area, and most people aren't looking forward to a colonoscopy or a scope down their throat. So, (laughs) (laughs) but it's really important to get checked. Because if you catch the cancer early, if there is cancer, your survivability goes up, I gather. Yep. And most people, when they come in for a colonoscopy, we're checking for adenomas, which are precancerous solid tissues. So if you can remove those, your chance of, of cancer developing into something yucky goes down significantly. So it's really important. Hmm. I've had colon cancer, rectal colon cancer myself. So, you know, I don't want to go through that again. And what stood out to you about Amy's bedside manner, for lack of a better term? Well, she obviously was very experienced and had no problems with me fussing at her, I guess, <laughs> or anything. I worked in 1965 and 66 at a hospital as an orderly. As an orderly. And so sometimes I can be a little tough on other hospital workers because I've been one. <laughs> I know how I'm supposed to work. It's so funny you say that. My mom was a nurse. <laughs> And whenever oh. we go to the doctor, she forbids me from telling the healthcare professional that we're interacting with that she has a healthcare background because she thinks <laughs> she thinks it'll like influence the care or that they'll assume things about her. Does that resonate with you at all, Amy? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yes. You know, I once had a sinus infection and I went to the doctor and I said, I have this post-nasal drip. And then that was my giveaway. (laughs) 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 So I try and talk not medical. Not medical. Yeah. Yeah. How did you get into this line of work, Amy? Right. Well, my father had, who he's recently, he recently passed not due to colon cancer, but he had colon cancer in the past and he actually had Crohn's disease. And so when I was In driver's training at age 15, I learned how to drive by taking him back and forth to his appointment. So that was my passion. I just wanted to help people Hmm. in that area. How how old was he when he passed? Oh, he just passed last year. So he passed at 71. So you had him... from something else. Yeah, from something else. You had him a while then after the cancer, which is lovely. Yeah, he, he survived colon cancer. So when people come in and, and they're nervous, I have just compassion for them. Roger, how was it to get this procedure during COVID? You know, so many people avoided medical appointments for fear of the virus. Well, again, I, I've worked in medicine and I knew that the masks were going to help a lot. That washing your hands was a good way to handle things. And I wasn't worried because I thought I could cope with it. I mean, I've been in infectious disease rooms in hospitals, and 
So, so I wouldn't panic by it. You were panicked. Okay. I was. I'm panicked on your behalf, uh, Amy. How has it been to work through COVID? I imagine you were shut down for a time. We were shut down for six weeks, and then we opened. Uh, appointments were sparse, I'd say, um, not as busy. But now we're up and running. It's busy, busy days, and makes the day go by fast. I bet. And did you yeah. wind up staying healthy or did you ever catch COVID? I stayed healthy. Yay! I'm so glad. Were you ner- Were you nervous about COVID? I was not. Other people in the office did get COVID. They said it was a, a cold for them. They experienced a cold. Luckily, the young and healthy people aren't as affected as much, but I understand that it can turn as well. Well, I want to thank thank both of you for your time and sharing a little bit of positive news. Yeah, well, thanks, thank Roger, for, for contacting them. That's so flattering. All right. Thank you for calling. Roger Meyer thanking nurse Amy Sersanti for her care in the midst of a pandemic. Keep your stories of standout service coming. Email coloradomatters at CPR.org. That's coloradomatters at CPR.org. We just ask, since we're fuddy-duddy journalists that you have no financial connection to the business you celebrate. Colorado has closed the books on its first year of legalized sports betting. The state collected more than $6.5 million in tax revenue. Money will start to flow to various programs this fall. Here's CPR's Corey Jones. By law, this program only taxes profits made by casinos on sports betting. That means when the house wins, the state wins. So this pot of money does not include the income taxes placed on individual winnings. And I took a closer look at this first year from last May through April of this year. Sports bettors wagered more than $2.3 billion online and at casinos Now, again, you take the money lost by bettors, and in Colorado, sportsbooks essentially pay a 10% tax on those profits, and there's your revenue for the state. Okay, so how do these millions compare to what was expected? Gaming officials say they really didn't know what to expect because of COVID. Remember, sports betting launched here early in the pandemic when casinos were closed, most pro sports had postponed their seasons, and many of us were stuck at home. Colorado's director of gaming, Dan Hartman, talked to me about this. To explain it further, he actually used the state's various elevation changes as a metaphor for this first year of sports betting. If you're driving in from the plains of Colorado and you're you're coming up, you know, slowly, and then you hit the mountains, which is football season, and we shot straight up. And depending on which week and all of that, you kind of go up and down. Then earlier this year, professional and college basketball brought on a lot of the betting action. And to continue the metaphor here, Hartman says we're now on the western slope, meaning betting has started to level out a bit uh, with baseball as well as playoff basketball and playoff hockey, keeping things fairly stable. But, you know, betting typically cools off in the summer. CPR's Corey Jones on the state's first year of sports betting revenue. Most of it, by the way, will pay for water projects from conservation to storage, and that spending is set to be approved in September. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with an up-and-coming Denver author you should be reading. $50,000 says so. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. 
on the new episode of Systemic, meet a law enforcement leader who tries to change things from the top down and sometimes faces resistance from her own officers. So we had a meeting and I said, I know how officers behave. And I'm gonna tell you right now, I don't like the undertone, I don't like the overtone, and I will not stand for it. And Find Systemic from Colorado Public Radio on Apple Podcasts, NPR One, or wherever you listen. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The Whiting Award goes to emerging writers. It comes with $50,000, a nice chunk of change. But it's also a way of saying, hey, pay attention to this author. Stephen Dunn of Denver is one of the winners this year. He has written two novels, teaches at Regis University, and he's collaborating on a book dissecting the music of rapper Nas. Stephen, welcome. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Does the $50,000 come as a check or is it like direct deposited? A direct deposit. <laughs> oh, <Yeah>. how, <laughs> yeah. how convenient. Even better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just so curious about how the money arrived. I, I want to start with your most recent novel, Water and Power. It's unlike anything I've ever read. And it is inspired by your time in the Navy. You served on a submarine. Your descriptions are so vivid that I felt claustrophobic. Were you claustrophobic in the sub? Uh, yeah, I was. And thank you for feeling claustrophobic. I mean, claustrophobic, too. That's a sign, then, <laughs> that you've achieved what you wanted? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think, for me, I got used to it. So, like, allowing yourself to be claustrophobic and kind of crazy was the best way for me to go about it. Like, I'm on here. I can't go anywhere. This is it, you know. This is not a normal situation, so I'm not going to pretend like I'm normal <laughs> or anything. Like, you know, just... Do stuff, read a bunch, play cards, you know, act silly with a bunch of people and and work, you know, and try not to hate your life. <laughs> and try not to hate your life. In other words, try not to fight the yeah. claustrophobia. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Interesting. You write about oxygen levels. Oh, yeah. And oxygen candles. Help us understand those. Um, so the oxygen level, so normal earth atmospheric oxygen is twenty one percent. And so on a subnormal oxygen level is 17%. So you're just always tired no matter what. You can get 12 hours of sleep, you'll still be sleepy. So the candles, the name is a little misleading because when I first heard candles, I thought candles. But so it's like a chemical burn, you know, and these like canisters are about maybe the um, diameter of a pie pan. And then they're about like knee high or something. So they like just kind of burn at the top, but it's like a chemical. So you don't see fire. It's just like ash, like kind of slowly burning down like a flat top, kind of like, I don't know, like imagine a chapstick or something, like a giant chapstick. Yeah, with yeah. Ash. yeah. And, and it's providing oxygen when there's not quite enough? Yeah, yeah. When the oxygen dips below like 17, 16%, they will burn oxygen candles. So, yeah. I, I love how you described it as a giant chapstick. <laughs> and it makes me wonder how you arrive when you're writing at good metaphor. Oh, I think thinking of a metaphor that's like close to the thing, like sometimes I dislike metaphors because they take you too far away from the object. You know, like my heart was like a fleeting ship or some like that. Oh, <laughs> um, But yeah, I like metaphors that like stick close to the thing in image and maybe function sometimes too. So like the chapstick metaphor is perfect for that, you know. Like yeah, it, it didn't take it me out down. of the sub. Yeah, okay, good, yeah. <laughs> Which felt important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I could understand how the device would work. 
Okay, perfect. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have you read a passage about ending a tour on a sub, okay? Okay. We finally get off the sub in the middle of the ocean because our mission is done and the sub has to get back to business. We climb down the sub into a little boat. Waves splash inside the boat. The little boat takes us to a ship. We climb up the side of the ship. We wait on the ship for two hours. A helicopter takes us to base. We wait on base for an hour until a cab takes us to a hotel. One of the submariners is being medically discharged from sub-duty because he needed a psychological evaluation. For four months, he dribbled an imaginary basketball around and never spoke to anyone. During his evaluation, he spun the ball on his index finger and shot hook shots. When we got off, he passed the ball to someone else. He didn't need it any longer. In the hotel bar, I hear him speak for the first time. He says, see, it takes a lot of stupid maneuvers just to get back to normal life. This book, Water and Power, it's like a literary scrapbook of your memories of imagined interviews of graphics and illustrations related to military life. What did you want to achieve with it? I wanted to achieve something that like pure memoir can't and also something that pure fiction can't. So I think like with things that are pure fiction, sometimes it doesn't have a believability to it. Um, People just kind of dismiss it if they know like it's just straight fiction, even though I say this book is fiction. And then sometimes memoir is so concerned with facts that they can't really like get to the emotional depth sometimes or like really speculate and stretch things out. Like I always give the example of, um, damn, American Sniper, you know, where he's like, I shot. 309 people or whatever. I don't know the exact number, but the argument becomes, no, he really didn't do that. He only killed 300 people. And I'm like, why are we arguing about nine people? I'm like, it's a lot of people. So that's what I feel like memoir and biographies do is like really focus or concerned with facts and military like thrives off of, you know, these factual things. So me doing with scrapping, you know, things together, my personal experiences felt real because they're also real, but then I can speculate into things that aren't necessarily true, but they feel real. And I don't have to, like, pretend to be factual about them. And you get into other people's heads. Yes. In what you might imagine is going on behind their eyes. Yeah, some people gave me, um, there were a lot of, like, actual people who gave me their story. So it has the perception that I got into a lot of people's heads. But um, some interviews I fictionalize in there. But most of them are people, you know. And that's another thing I think is missing from military literature is it being multivocal because a lot of it is like a singular heroic narrative usually from a straight white man, you know. So that's... You include snippets from recruitment ads over the years, campaigns designed by Madison Avenue to attract people to military service. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um... Were you recruited? Yeah, I was recruited. It was partial, like one of my cousins joined and, you know, we always see the images growing up. We saw, I think at the time when I joined, it was like, let the journey begin, you know, like very like futuristic computer stuff going on and, you know, the ships. Above all, it will demand your honor, your courage, and your commitment. 
I think those images are important when discussing the military too, because it's like any other company. It's designed to sell you a story, to sell you a brand in order for you to do this. And I think those recruiting posters takes the military out of this like odd, like holy, sacred church thing that we all volunteer for out of love and service into something like, it's a company, you know, this is what they do. And I think people know that too, but I think seeing the images adds another layer to that, yeah. And to connect it to Madison Avenue, to think the same firm that is drawing up this ad for the Navy might be drawing up a toothpaste ad. Yeah, the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Would you let your own kids serve? Um, I... I have discouraged them from doing it. Um, I mean, we'll have honest conversations about it. if there's something they really wanted to do, I would support them. But my daughter is 19, so she is old enough to grow up in it. You know, like, know when I was in the military, all the moving around, kind of the unhappiness. So she was like, I'm, I'm not doing that. Mm. You know, um, my son doesn't know any better. He's five. So I've been out of the Navy for like 11 years now. So maybe he may see some images elsewhere. I'm like, that's a good idea, you know. And I joined because of poverty. So like my kids aren't poor. So hopefully they don't have to do that like I had to, you know. You joined, you needed the money. Oh, yeah, yeah, college. I didn't even know you can, like, take loans out for college when I was in high school. Because <laughs> I grew up in, like, I yeah, it was an odd place in West Virginia, and I just wasn't aware, you know, that you could just take loans out for college. Not always the best idea, but I didn't know that was an option, you know. Yeah. Indeed, you grew up in rural West Virginia, which is reflected in your earlier novel, Potted Meat. Yeah. And it inspired a short film called The Usual Route, whose main character is a trash collector. Mm -hmm. And I understand that's work you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was it like? That's To this day, it's like the funnest job I ever had. I don't know. I like being outside, and I like nature. I mean, I'm not necessarily fond of trash, but uh, (laughs) it was like... Wait, we have to stop with that line. I'm not necessarily (laughs) fond of trash, he said. That's a great line. But I I am in a way, it's interesting, like I am super interested in what's discarded and kind of like the images that those make. So in like the short film, which was adapted from the book, I talk about my trash route and there's a, you know, a live raccoon like chewing on a baby shoe, then a mattress, then like some dead kittens and then funeral flowers. So I'm like, what's discarded kind of creates its own type of beauty in a way. And living in a discarded place in a way, and as like a discarded people, you know, so people already leave Appalachia out of the conversation mostly. And then within that, they don't talk about black people living there. So it's like these multiple layers of like being discarded. So I've always kind of been, I mean, even before I had language for it, you know, like I knew I liked trash, you know, or decay in what's discarded. So, yeah. Did you feel thrown out? Um... In a way, yeah, yeah, or like not welcomed, you know, in larger conversations or larger, sometimes even with like the larger conversation of blackness in the country, you know, I did. so it was something about that, that not always filling in like a sort of outcast in a way. Do you think that that had to do with geography? The idea that Appalachia, I guess like I think of my own kind of preconceptions of Appalachia and the mm-hmm. first thing I picture is... A white person in the hollers. Oh, totally. Do you yeah. think that's... <laughs> yeah, that that's the image. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah, I mean, and to be fair, like, yes, that is like a prevalent image or population there too, but there's a lot of black people there, especially in my town, from the people who came from down south to work in the coal mines. 
And there is an issue of like just geography, right? Like there's no real like highways coming through, like no major cities connecting. So, yeah. As a writer, you have a really strong voice. I mean, whether it's in your narration, if it's writing characters, um, even on your own social media feeds, oh, <laughs> there's a strong voice. Oh, thanks. What advice do you have for people who are trying to develop their voices as writers? Oh, that is such a hard question because I'm often surprised when people say I have a strong voice and I appreciate it. But I don't know. I think for me, like I mind my community and like this whole like blackness of like what I've been talking my whole life. I mean, how I've been talking my whole life and how are people in my neighborhood talk and all of that stuff. So that's what I've drawn from personally. And it's something I appreciated. I didn't know. I mean, I'm sure I was aware it had some type of strength behind it. So I think that would be my advice is like, look to your communities. Where do you see strength in voices or just something you admire and just kind of pull from that? In that way, do you channel? Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. In Potted Me, I, I sent the book to my cousin, and he appears a lot in the book. You know, he was like, man, I had no idea I talked like that. <laughs> he was like, you got me perfect. I was like, yeah, man, I listened to you a lot, like growing up, you know. <laughs> so I love that your advice really is listen Yo, to yeah. the voices around you. Yeah. And draw on those. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is that a more authentic outcome if you do that, do you think, than sort of pure invention? Oh, to- um, maybe both. You could do both. But for me, it was a pure outcome, like for the book that I needed to write. Like if I would have paid more attention to literature of how, and I did, you know, I tried to write this book the way like older white people say you should write books, you know, with this super proper English and all of that. But it has a lot of limitations. And I put proper in quotes because no English is proper. I'm on my soapbox now. But uh, <laughs> Well, good. Stay, stay there. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's no such thing as proper English. Like, all variances of Englishes are proper, right? So, like, what's proper for my neighborhood was the way these people talked, and that's the way I needed to write my book. Were you a big reader growing up? Not at all. Yeah, not at all. I read, <laughs> yeah, I read one book from the time I was like 12 to 22. So, what was it? Um, was, oh, The Old Man in the Sea, which was cool. You know, yeah, it was a nice little cool book. Uh, we watched some other, like The Little Women and The Grapes of Wrath and stuff. We watched those, but I wasn't a big reader. But I always make the argument, though, um, since I'm writing this book about Nas, I open up with that. Like, I'm not a, I was never a big reader, and people tell you that, but I listen to a lot of rap albums. So, I think the point of reading when people say you have to be a big reader. Yeah, but, because I, I hear yeah. that a lot right among authors. Yeah. Make sure you read a lot. You absorb a lot. Yeah, yeah. And maybe the key word is absorb, right? Like I listened. I was a painter, you know, and all of that stuff. So I was actively creating while absorbing, you know, listening to people talk, listening to comedians and, all, you know, all of this stuff. So, yeah. Was there any sense of stigma or shame that came with not being a big reader entering circles where you hear all the time read 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 oh yeah a lot yeah i think when i was in undergrad you know it's not all of my teachers there were a few teachers who were like never even stressed that you know but mm. visiting writers and stuff would be like you gotta be a big reader and i think people coming up to like my peers you know we're all just starting they hear these these ideas to you having to be a big reader and people still do, you know, like I've been a reader since I was five and blah, blah, blah. I've been a writer since I was five and all of that. So, yeah, I had a little stigma at first, but luckily, like I was older when I started writing. So I was like, 
that, man. Don't worry about it. I'm, I'm not concerned about that. I know what I have to do. I'm really glad you said that. It feels really freeing yeah. because I, I'm not a fast reader. Yeah. And I can't say that every time I open a book, I always enjoy it. Yeah. And it's really hard. It's hard to say that in circles where you're kind of surrounded by authors. So that's true. Thank huh? you. Yeah. You for welcome. saying it. Yeah. Thank you for, you know, for saying that also. Well, yeah. sure. I think there are a few like, identifying things the big three when it comes to being a writer or stuff is okay. like most people like you have to be a big reader and then with that comes introversion you know and i'm not like on anybody for saying they're introverted so introversion and also like not being good with math like those three things come together right and i hear it all the time in every single writing class workshop like oh you know we're writers we're not good at math i'm like um i am i'm also not introverted <laughs> you know it also did read a lot so yeah but i feel like most people may be those things like genuinely but they apply it to everyone who are writer and a lot of people think they have to be those things well i think this sometimes. is why representation matters totally yeah like it's important for other writers to be able to see examples yeah. of success that don't look like whatever the the cliche is. Yeah, yeah. And I have to constantly look outside of writing. I mean, I, I am inspired by other writers and stuff, but for a lot of stuff, I have to constantly look outside of writers and find models on how to live my writing life and writing career. I, Give me I, an example. Chris Rock. I read a lot of Chris Rock videos. So he specifically talks about like going to um, comedy clubs where nobody is expecting him, so like he really has the work to make people laugh, <laughs> you know, these things. Now, me, I'm trying to be a better person. <laughs> right? That's all you want. You want to be better. I'm trying to be a better person. It's hard. It's hard to be a better person because I know me. That's right. You know you. Today. I gave a bum $5. Bum was down there, I gave him $5. And that's kind of cool, I gave a bum $5, right? But the problem is, I know I gave the bum $5. <laughs> like, I'm just too conscious in my head. Like, I know I gave him $5. It's almost like I'm looking at God as I gave him the money, like, look at me, I'm a nice person. I'm a good human being, right, Lord? And comedians also, like, bring other people along. Like, somebody always opens for them, you know? So, and I've gotten in a time where I've been, like, the only, like, non-white person on reading lists and stuff. But I don't appreciate that. So I've, like, taken the comedian stance of, like, I'm going to bring somebody with me. Not to open up, but, like, I want to make space for these other people. So, yeah, I treat my writing career like my rap career <laughs> and my comedian career. <laughs> Yeah, because I think they have good models for collaboration and community. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. In other words, if you're asked to be on a panel, you might invite someone yourself. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. Let's talk yeah. about the Nas Project. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd like to just dissect, diagram a track <laughs> with you. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. Why, first off, Nas? That was my literature growing up. And he's doing so many cool things with stories. And I like stories. He's always telling stories. And, of course, like the skill as an MC that people love. But a lot of his stuff is like movies to me. And I've always been able to, like, visualize everything he's been saying. And 
he he gets into character and you know he he writes from different characters. You don't know what's fact or fiction. So I'm like, uh, Nas is like he's a writer. I mean, of course, he's I mean, a you've writer, just described but, very much yeah. your approach to writing. And what's I, fact? What's fiction? In, yeah. what, which whose voice? You know, <laughs> super influenced by Nas. Yeah, uh, when I first started being a writer, where people were like, "Oh, read the greats. You got to read the classics." I went back and listened to Nas. I was like, "That's that's my greats. That's my classics." You know, so this is me like coming back around to that and giving it this full attention in a book. You've chosen New York State of Mind Part Two. Yeah. To listen to snippets of and maybe talk about with me. Totally. Yeah. Why? Why this track? Movement um, and world building. That's why, yeah, that track for me, it's just, and it's something I'm always thinking about, like being obsessed with geography and places, being from West Virginia, wanting to look out. And so I remember just listening to New York State of Mind, and it felt like my neighborhood, even though it was not my neighborhood. You want to pick uh, some lyrics um, to start with? Yeah, the opening. Yeah, yeah, just the opening few. Start at the very beginning. Yeah, yeah. City door, broken glass in the hallway, bloodstained floors, neighbors, look at every bag you bring through your doors, lock the top lock, mama should have cuffed me to the radiator, why not? It might have saved me later from my block and why cops, hookers crawling off the stroke, coughing stitches in their head, stinking and I dread thinking they be snitching, but who else? When he says, broken glass in the hallway, bloodstained floors, neighbors, look at every bag you bring through your doors and then he says lock the top lock so right now it's like i came up with the terms called like the source of the movement and then the um the mode of it so the body is moving horizontally through you know the hallway then he goes inside the apartment building so that would be like bodily horizontal and then he looks down because he notices stuff on the streets, you know, like look down from the window and see stuff. So then you have like visual vertical or whatever. So that's that's how Nas is building these worlds in New York state of mind. And, and of course, like the vertical aspect is important in high rise projects. And that's why I thought it felt similar to my town because we lived in a lot of hills and we we're always moving up and down <laughs> and everything they bust a ue i jog to my building come out later wearing camouflage see the sergeant and the captain strangle men it's gasping for air till they move no more and just stare with dead eyes tie the riots and then a little further in that verse he comes back down on the street and you know he see i see the cops strangle men gasping for air and everything so now like the view has changed and he's just looking at it horizontal so that's like a visual horizontal as you describe it it feels to me like flying through something oh yeah 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 um and i don't know why i'm getting as you describe his tools almost a video game world sense yeah i think that would be yeah yeah because he does it from like the first person sometimes like the first person point of view and then sometimes you feel like you're distant at it and then he uses multiple like he'll do a montage in there so it's very filmic you know like very cinematic and stuff mm. um, you see about it you read about it it's in your papers it's in your daily news New York Chronicles, every day, the crime rate, the murder rate, the money rate, the paper chase. You know what I mean? New York State of Mind, baby. Check it out. 
I'm at the gambling spot, my hands on a knot. New York Yankee cap, cover my eyes, stand in one spot. I take a dose, send him home to a shoebox. You lost that, I put your dollar in the jukebox. Hear my favorite song, all these can sing along. All the cigarette smokes clog in my lungs. Hood rats flashing their tongue, young thugs blasting their gun. We got reputations. How he does the montage, you like sisters pregnant, fathers on drugs. Beds of piss infested. You know, you know he's talking about the projects, so he's like pulling images from far in the projects and these plural objects. So like the montage is gathering in a huge space and it feels quicker because the images have to travel faster and stuff. So mm, the pace of that. Yeah, it's really cool. And then he does that um like he moves data down where he talks about how many friends he had growing up. He like I had eight friends, seven friends, seven turned to six, you know, so he's like moving down like this constant movement and he does all of these different types of movement in this one song it's it's so good <laughs> yeah and i'm just happy to be able to like give this type of attention back to this thing that's giving me so much you know like to break it down in these ways yeah have you ever met Nas? no i haven't yeah <laughs> dream would that be a dream come true yeah or? it would yeah i've uh-huh. seen him in concert once which was cool but yeah to meet him that, that would be nice yeah Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Congratulations on the award. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Colorado author Stephen Dunn, a winner of the 2021 Whiting Award for Emerging Writers. He teaches in the MFA program at Regis in Denver and Cornell College in Mount Vernon, Iowa. That's Colorado Matters for today with thanks to our team. Carl Bielek. Allie Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.